Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to everyone joining us online as well. Wasn't last Sunday a special Sunday? Wasn't that just an amazing time together? Yes, for all, for two people down here, it really was. I thought it was a really special Sunday. I had so many meaningful conversations. If you missed it, we burned our $4.1 million mortgage on stage last week. So that was a holy, crazy time. I heard from the... Um, Middle school boys, it was their favorite service ever because I was lighting things on fire on stage, so they were all engaged that way. And some fun conversations afterwards, Harley Ponch, many of you know the Ponches, Harley and Carol have been a part of Eagle for 20 plus years, and Harley came up after service and he said, Pastor Eric, I'm kind of conflicted in like my rejoicing because he, he would say for the last probably 10 years, he would say to Carol, his wife, Honey, I'm trusting that the Lord's going to keep me alive long enough to see the church burn the mortgage. And so he said, so Pastor Eric, I'm just a little nervous about what's on the other side of all this. So he said, please don't come by my house in a suit or anything like that. So oh, it was great. Just so many wonderful, we had a lot of families here last week who had shared a part of the journey, some old Eagle friends and such. So thanks again for everyone who's been a part of such a threshold moment in the life of our body, and I don't think I slept for a couple of days solid. I just kind of kept riding the wave of just smiling and rejoicing and just beginning to dream and envision about what God has in store now at this stage of our life and ministry together. So looking forward to that chapter with all of you to say, Lord, for such a time as this, you put us in this space and trusted us with all of this for bigger purposes in mind. So open up your Bibles. Today we're back in our series on David, 1 Samuel 24. Open up there. We kind of took a little pause in our David series because we had some other things we needed to address. We had our high school senior uh, Sunday in there. We had our mortgage burning Sunday. But we're back now with the life of David, and we'll be in with David for the remainder of the summer. And we may take a pause here or there for some other Sundays. But we're just kind of reset the story. There is more reserved of David's life than any other character in the Bible. So we're going to be hanging out with David for a long journey because the Bible hangs out with David. And David's set before us not as an ideal life, but as a real life. Not as a life without error or without mistake, but a life with God in the valleys and the mountaintops and all the places in between. And so David is a, is a great life to just pull alongside and say, not that he handled everything perfectly, but the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. So even in his failures, even when he made a mistake, even when he didn't get it right, there was something about the interior of David's life that God looked at and was well pleased with. And I think there's a lot we can learn in the journeys as we go through it. And, and today we're at a section of David's life that we've seen he's spending an awful lot of time in what's called a desert now, I grew up in Iowa and moved to Indiana, so no one went to the desert for any purpose at all. Like, the concept that someone would go and, like, visit a desert really wasn't in the vocabulary. Mainly, when we, where we were growing up, the only thing that we had a context for desert was those movies, right, where you'd watch that someone would always blow a tire or run out of gas, and it was just barren wilderness. It was dry. It was arid. It was lifeless. It gave you the pit. Like, why would you want to go to the desert? Well, David is spending about 13 years of his life after he's anointed king in 1 Samuel 16. The next 13 years, he doesn't live in the desert by choice. He's driven in the desert by someone else. 
And isn't that true of desert places in our lives? Often we don't choose our deserts. The deserts are chosen for us. And so some of you come in this morning in your own personal desert. It could be a desert in the marriage. It could be a desert with health. It could be a desert with a loved one. It could be a desert at work with job loss or a desert financially or a desert with a ministry dream. Our deserts, we don't often choose. They're often chosen for us. So what we're going to look at today is how does God come to us in those places of burning sand? Because if you live life long enough, you'll be with David in that place of burning sand. And you say, God, how are you coming to me in this place? And we're going to see this 1 Samuel 24. Here's the setting of this chapter. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now remember, Saul's the first king of Israel, and he's still occupying the throne, but the second king of Israel, David, has been anointed and appointed. So he's like king in the wings. And David went from having like no Instagram account to David having an Instagram account and more followers than Saul. So picture how Saul was feeling about this. Saul was struggling with insecurity. He was struggling with the popularity of David rising so much. So Saul's mode, because he had all the power and authority being the king, he's like, I'm going to just eliminate David. So he's spending a lot of his energy pursuing David. That's why David is driven into the desert. He doesn't choose to live there. He's driven there by Saul. And Saul's got 3,000 men now, and they're chasing him through this area called En Gedi. And when I went to Israel two years ago, this was one of my favorite places that we visited. When I saw on the itinerary we were going to En Gedi, I just circled it. I couldn't wait because I was remembering this story. And we hiked. Here's a picture of our hike. So En Gedi is this. And how cool is it called? Like, did you notice that in verse 2? The crags of the wild goats. Now, is that not a really cool? Like, if I was going to start a rock climbing company, that would be the name I'd choose. Or maybe like a really cool restaurant, like crags, like, right? So the crags, that means steep cliffs. That represents steep rock formations. Does that represent that terrain? So this is the desert of En Gedi, and these are the crags of the wild goats. When I'm standing there, behind me is the Dead Sea. So the Dead Sea, the plain of the Dead Sea rises in to the desert of En Gedi and up that, and that's where we hiked up in there. And while we're hiking, look what we came across. Shocker, some wild goats. The wild goats love this area, as we'll see a little bit later in the story why. But we're hiking up there. We're working our way through this desert of En Gedi. We're living 1 Samuel 24, just like David was doing. And it was one of those moments for me, I just couldn't wait to get to En Gedi. En, en means spring, and Gedi means goat. So this is like the desert of the spring and goat, and this is that space. So I was just anticipating what was going to be a part of this hike, and why would David choose this area to spend so much time in? Well, he's here. Look what happens, verse 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. 
Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So we're, while we're walking along this trek, we look up, and here's an image we see along the way. Here's a picture of the caves. So literally while you're walking along, look at them, the rock face right there. There are caves of En Gedi. And I was thinking about this scene, right? where Saul turns the cave into like a portalette for the moment, right? So this is a place where he's relieving himself. Don't you just love the Bible? I mean, the Bible's crazy, the stuff it records in here. Scholars have debated for years, number one or number two. I'm going with number two because of the length of time and the way David could cut off the robe. And so the point is he's in there, he's relieving himself. And now notice, so you can kind of, can you picture like, David in that cave deeper in, they'd go in there because in the cool of the day, like when we were hiking up there, it was 98 degrees that day. And so it would be very common there. I mean, it was just blazing hot. And so they say the Dead Sea being the lowest point on the earth, it's literally like this body of water that's baked from underneath because the core of the earth is heating it from underneath and it's just baked from the top, from the sun that's just scorching. And so the people would find these caves to relieve themselves of the temperature, and then obviously here Saul's relieving himself biologically too. And so David's like, he's in there with his men, Saul's in there, and the guys are like, David, this is like perfect. It's set up just for you. You can remove your enemy right now. You can take him out. And notice they like quote scripture at him, right? This is the day the Lord told you about what's going to happen. Isn't this something? So here's our first kind. We're going to look at kind of three lessons I'm calling desert spirituality. Like, how does the desert train us in some ways? How is God coming to us in these desert and burning sand places? And the first one is this that we see from David. There's this refusing to clutch and grasp what's within reach, but not God's will. So here's kind of the first way God comes to us in the desert, of refusing to clutch and grasp what's within your reach, but not God's will. Like it's within David's reach right here to take a step and eliminate the guy who's basically spending his entire existence to try to kill him. He could now take him out and he could then occupy the throne. He's got pressure from the guys around him, quoting scripture at him. The external compulsion around David just to simply take out his sword and take out, it had to be off the charts. I mean, right there in that moment, just, David, it's all set up right here. God's delivered this right for you. And here you get a little window into David's interior world. He's able to sift through all that noise, all the pressure, all the other voices around him, and he's able to kind of center down on what does God want? And David said, hey, just because it's within my reach doesn't mean it's God's will. Just because it's within my reach doesn't mean that's what God wants. You know, students, I thought about, you're a generation who has more within your reach than any generation that's ever lived. But just because it's within your reach doesn't mean it's the Lord's will. Just because it looks good, sounds good, feels good doesn't mean it's what God says is good. Just because the opportunity is set there doesn't mean that's what God wants. And that's not just reserved for students, right? Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, the rest of us adults. You know, a common conversation I have with men these days is just because that's within your reach doesn't mean that's the Lord's will. Just 
Just because it's an opportunity set before you, just because it's within the bounds of you to be able to, right, could be a relationship, could be something at work, could be a a shortcut here, a cut the corner there. Just because it's within your reach doesn't mean it's God's will. And look at David here. I mean, this, this is one of those moments in David's life where he could, it's right there within his reach, and, and he, that, that's not what the Lord wants. And do you see how much has to be built in here to be able to navigate that kind of noise and to be able to discern in the midst of all those compulsions? No, I know what the Lord wants here, and he doesn't want me to take the sword and do that. He just clips off a piece of the robe, and we'll see why that's significant in a minute. So question for you and me in our own specific desert places, our own personal and Gettys, is the Lord coming to us right now and bringing some clarity around, yeah, that's within your reach, but that may not be my will. You might have certain voices here, you might have certain input there, you might be feeling a sense of compulsion here, but are we centered enough? Is the desert, you know where the desert It's the desert that trains us to refuse to clutch and to grasp that which, though is within reach, isn't of the Lord. It's the desert that trains us in that. Really, there's no other place that really trains us in that. Because usually when something was in our reach and it looks good, sounds good, feels good, we just reach and clutch and grasp for it. It's the desert that says, hold up, just clip the rope. And can you imagine the scene around him when the guys in the cave, David doesn't come back with Saul's head, but comes back with a piece of cloth. And let's see what happens now. Verse 8, then David, after he cuts off the robe, Saul finishes his doing his business and then leaves the cave, and then David walks out to the mouth of the cave. So if you picture in Getty, there's that bank there, and then there's this valley in between. So David lets Saul kind of descend down and go over to the other side. And he then stands out. It would have been very easy for him to speak across the valley. And David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. My lord, the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. How about that? He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, see my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. Do you see this? So this is the second way God's coming to us in deserts. The first way is this refusing to clutch and grasp what's within our reach but not his will. The second way, the desert, it's like the heat of the desert, it lifts the fog of lies. Do you see what happened? Because David handled the cave situation the way God wanted it handled, look what he's thrust into. He's thrust into a setting where he gets to speak truth to Saul because Saul has internalized all these lies about David. 
Saul believes that David is the one like he's got it in for him. Saul is believing false, he's believing like false conclusions about David's character and his motives and his intent. Like Saul is running around thinking he's got to take David out because he thinks David's going to take him out. And because David handled the cave the way God wanted it handled. He stands at the mouth of the cave with a piece of the robe, and now he gets to lift the fog of lies with clarity and truth. He simply says, Saul, falls with a posture of humility. You're the king. You're the Lord anointed. I've been respecting your position, respecting your authority. I've been honoring your place. I've been attempting to support your reign and rule, though it's hard to do when you're trying to kill me. It's hard to be supportive of someone who's trying to kill you, but he's trying. And he says, look, Saul, look, this is the truth. And have you noticed that about desert seasons? Because this doesn't just happen to David and Saul in the wilderness. This happens to you and me. We can get thrust into settings in our human relationships, right? Be that setting at work, at home, with family, in ministry, in church. We can start internalizing the tr- the, some things about someone, someone else's opinion about someone just simply not true, that we've just got all kinds of momentum around this conclusion about a person's character or motives or intent, and it's not true. And you know where the place that God often takes us to help us see and clarify lies and truth is the desert. The desert burns away the fog and helps us see things as they really are. And in this case for Saul, he's getting, whoo, he's got this whole fog around him. He's got this view of David. He just thinks David's intent is one way, and Saul's like, wow, maybe I've just internalize this all wrong, and it's this place of the burning sand, it's this place of barrenness and of wilderness that leads us into this space and lifts the fog of lies. And David's right now learning this. He can't control Saul. He's learned long ago he can't control Saul. Saul's the king, but David can control his response to Saul's actions, and that's what he's doing right now. He said, Saul, I could have done a lot of things in that cave, but my response to your actions should demonstrate some truth about my character and posture towards you. And I think that's a good checkpoint for us in our own relational worlds, that sometimes we can hold a relational posture towards someone that's not grounded in reality. In this case, the fog of lies lifts, and now Saul is getting some clarity about who David really is now the third element in desert spirituality. When David, verse 16, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Isn't that ironic? The king is weeping because there's a sense of conviction, right? Sometimes, I mean, how many times in my own life where it starts becoming clear, like I thought one thing about a person and then reality is this, and there's just this, ah, you just have this place of conviction and of brokenness of, man, I just... I realize how off I was there, and he wept. You are more righteous than I. Righteous, the Bible word is right living. Basically saying, hey, David, you're living more rightly than I've been living. I'm the one that's off base, not you, is what he's saying to, to Saul. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's 
family. So the first way God comes to us in these burning sand places is there's this training in our refusal to clutch and grasp what's within our reach but not God's will. The second way he comes to us is this lifting of the fog of lies and helps us see things, sees a little more truth here. The fog get cleared and we see things a little more clearly, specifically about maybe our, the intent of another person towards us. And then thirdly now, look what's happening for David and for Saul in this wilderness and desert space, that David, they'll recognize the only reason he's out in En Gedi is because of Saul. The only reason he's there. But here's what he's grasping. As much as Saul thinks he's dominating and defining the desert, he recognizes ultimately God's the one. He anchors himself in God's ability to define and dominate the desert. And boy, how important is that for us when we're in the middle of our own desert seasons of life? Because some of you, like for David, can you picture like all of his life was just kind of overrun with Saul. He woke up every day and it was Saul's actions that dictated virtually every aspect of his existence. What Saul did dictated how David's day was going to go. Do you know how easy it is when you kind of, when you're thrust into a desert, not at your own choice, but at the choice of circumstances around you? Do you see how easy it is just to allow those circumstances to begin to dominate and define you? I know it is true for me, right? For those of you who've been walking through tremendous health battles, be that cancer or Alzheimer's or infertility, or you go through divorce or job loss or financial instability or ministry heartbreak, you can, you're driven into this desert by these circumstances, and the longer you live under the weight of those circumstances, the more those circumstances can begin to dominate and define your everyday living. Does anybody else feel that? We just... And then this is where David says, but it's in the desert where you begin to see, you know what? God's the one who gets the last word. Though Saul may have driven me here, actually God's meeting me here. Do You see, David's shifting it and go, hey, he wouldn't choose to live 13 years out in this wilderness. But he says, I'm here for a reason and God is meeting me here. It's like Eugene Peterson said in his book on David. He said, David started out running for his life and at some point he found the life he was running for. And the name of that life was God. Boy, isn't that good? David's on the run. Saul's pushing him into position on the run. He's running, trying to survive. And while he's out there in the desert, in the burning sand, in the barrenness, in the quietness of his aloneness, in those caves, just surviving, he realizes he's found what he's really been looking for. He's found God. And God then begins to define and dominate the desert of En Gedi. Saul thinks he's the one who gets the last word in the desert. And David says, actually, no, God does. And he anchors himself there. And so, towards the end of our hike up En Gedi, which turned into a multi-hour journey, like I said, it was about 98 that day. So the plan, the tour plan was we would hike up there in the morning and then we'd go down and hang out in the Dead Sea to cool off in the afternoon. So we started making our way up and it got so hot on the hike up that our guide found these places called the Cleft of the Rock. So here's a picture. We were walking up and we found these clefts. 
And when you step into a cleft like that, it's about 10 to 15 degrees cooler on the hike. And we'd stop there, we'd have some water, and of course I thought of the old hymn, right, that so many of you grew up singing in church, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock and covers me there with his hand. I mean, it was just a a beautiful picture and image of that. And then we kept going, we'd stop for some water breaks, and then there was this faint sound in the distance. We started hearing the sound of some, like, rustling water kind of spring-like sound, and it was the image of this. We kept going, and the sound kept getting, and the moment we heard the sound, it just kind of brought a spring to our step, right? And so we get to the top of this desert hike, 98 degrees, a couple of hours. We see nothing but burning sand and wild goats and rocks and caves, and then you come upon this at the top of the desert of En Gedi. It's this unbelievable waterfall literally bursting out of the side of the rock, coming from the core of the earth somehow. The water's ice cold, and the moment you step into the top of the desert of En Gedi, there's this mist from the waterfall. It's about, again, 10 to 15 degrees cooler in this mist, and it's just this into the pool at the bottom to be refreshed, and we're just kind of all soaking it in. And I evidently stood at some point and had a certain posture, and someone snapped a picture. And I thought when I saw that picture, this is God's invitation to you and me and our own personal engettis. And when we gathered around there, our guide opened up a scripture that I put in your notes, and here's what we read together. There's about 30 of us. We gathered around the base there, and here's what he read, Isaiah 35. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. So worship team, why don't you come on back up, and we're going to kind of use this as a springboard to our communion table this morning. I want to invite you to the table, and I want you to view the table as your own personal Engedi. We don't have wild goats, but we've got springs to offer at least, and it's the spring of living water. I want you to have that picture of the spring at the top of Engedi, and I want you to have the picture of the invitation that Jesus offers. And I want to ask you to reflect on a few things, whatever your personal desert experience is. And you may not be in the middle of a desert now, and this is just training and preparation for when you enter one. Because if you're not there, just keep living, and you'll eventually find one. And when you get there, maybe we'll have some language to attach to it and how God would want us to navigate it in the way he's coming to us. So as we come to the table this morning, I want you to reflect on this clutching and grasping imagery. Is there something where you feel like Jesus is coming to you these days and saying, yeah, I I know, I hear that's within your reach, but that's not really what I want there. And he's trying to train you to loosen your grip and release control and don't grasp after something. And you know, I thought of what it said of Jesus in Philippians 2, right? Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. So Jesus is our ultimate example of one who absolutely had within his reach the full authority of being God in the flesh, and he stood there refusing to take what was in his reach and to give himself as a servant.
to suffer and to die. So the table is such a beautiful picture of relinquishment, of surrender, of just saying, Lord, I'm gonna give myself over and trust in your plans and purposes in the middle of my own and get it here. Or maybe it's you come to the table and you say, Lord, I, I think I've been holding some things against another person or situation and, and I just it's becoming clear to me in this desert that I'm just asking you, Lord, to lift the fog and help me to see the truth. I want to live in a place of truth in that relationship. And maybe it's a sifting through that this morning. Or maybe it's coming to the table and recognizing and there's a lot of things that have driven you into your desert. Maybe a lot of choices of others have driven you there. That's really hard when it's the choice of others that are kind of dictating your everyday. Man, that's hard. Especially when the choice of others is so, it's kind of in for you. And you feel like Saul, it's so easy for Saul to dominate our desert. And maybe this morning, Maybe this morning as you come to the table, you break that bread and you dip it into the juice and you say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to anchor myself in this. There might be a whole lot of reasons why I'm in this desert, but here's what I know. You are here. You are here with me and you will define this and you will dominate this. And I'm going to trust you to turn this burning sand into a bubbling brook. I'm going to trust you to make a stream in the middle of this desert. I'm going to trust you to refresh me in this wilderness. And that's the invitation of the table. And it's open to anyone. You don't have to be a member of Eagle Church to participate in communion here. But the scriptures are clear. Your heart needs to have an intent to worship Jesus. This is an act of worship for his people. That when you come to the table, you tear off the bread to represent his broken body on the cross. You dip it into the juice to represent the shed blood. And the Bible says we do that to remember his sacrifice and we have companionship with him in our own personal Engedis because Jesus himself has gone before us. And we walk with him in these spaces. There's some gluten-free options at both tables as well. So for those of you who need that. And then the prayer benches are gonna be open. So in just a moment, I'm gonna pray and dismiss you. And then some of you have come and you're carrying some needs that you'd like some folks to pray with you. So myself and some of the elders will be available in our prayer areas. We'd love to pray with you to help you through whatever it is, anoint you with oil, if that's something you wanna be prayed for and prayed with, about something you want God to touch in your life and to bring healing in. We believe God still does that today and we're glad to pray with you in that. And then you just kind of get up out of your seats and then you just make your way over to the tables and you spread out all around this room. And uh, you can just use this time for your own gather as families, as life groups, or if you just want some personal space yourself, this is going to be your time in just a moment to simply say with David, yeah, this sand is hot, it's burning, it's dry, it's arid, it seems lifeless. I'm not sure how I got here. I'm not sure how long I'm going to be here. I can't see my way through, but here's what I'm going to rest in, that God, you're the one who will define dominate this desert and you will harvest out of it things beyond what I can see right now and I choose to worship you like David choose to go towards God in the middle of this desert let's stand together I'm going to pray for us and then you'll be dismissed to the tables Jesus I thank you for this story that you've preserved where 
we get a window into the inside of David's life. And I think of all the personal Engedis that are here right now. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, as we bring our burning sand to this table, would you turn it into a bubbling spring? Pour out your living water on these parched souls, we pray. We come to the table as an act of worship now, in Jesus' name.